Hey everybody, welcome to this episode of The Working Therapist. I'm Hayden Bullock, your host, and today we are going to start part three of our series called The Neonatal Intensive Care Unit and Medical Conditions Common to Premature Babies with our guests, Dr. Scott Cameron, Judy Philbrook, and Kirsty Miles. So stay tuned because here comes my discussion with them. Welcome to The Working Therapist with Hayden Bolick, a podcast designed to help you grow more, do more, and be more as a therapist. The Working Therapist is an extension of the Pediatric Developmental Therapy Network. We're glad you've joined us for today's podcast. So here's your host, Hayden Bolick. Okay, so we talked a lot about brain and lung and gut. How about vision? That's the ROP. Talking about the medical dictionary, that used to be RLF, which was retrolental fibroplasia. Mm. And then they changed it to ROP, which is retinopathy of prematurity. Mm -hmm. And it's just an eye thing. And again, because all of the organs are developing and immature, the blood vessels in the retina are forming and developing. And sometimes they don't form and develop as they should. So again, another thing that's graded, you've got stage one, stage two, et cetera. And you can even have to the point that you've got retinal detachment. So that's why with certain gestational ages, we do eye exams. So we have a pediatric ophthalmologist come in and do routine screenings on the premature babies based on criteria that's been established by the AAP. And this is what we follow. And if he sees something suspicious, then he'll say, well, all right, well, let me look again next week or two weeks. He'll determine when the next check has to be until everything looks like it should. And again, the higher the stages, the more risk that you have for problems with blindness or detachment. And, and there's laser treatments that you can do. I mean, there's some treatments when you get to those. It's not that we're just going to follow it until there's a problem that, mm -hmm. you know, we're going to intervene if there's a problem. Mm-hmm. So clinically, where we look at the ROP, retinopathy, prematurity, sometimes they come in and the parents like, we've been told they can't see anything. And I'm like, yeah, maybe. Let's see. You know, let's take it one day at a time. We're going to start with therapy toys. We're going to turn all the lights off. We're going to work in a dark room and we're going to start with some light up toys and we're going to do some basic tracking and we're going to see if they can initiate anything. So we're just going to start from the ground up and build and we don't know. Mm -hmm. I think we see the ROP and it can present so differently. So I never say never to anything because never. by the time you do, you're going to be wrong. So I think it's just they can be all over the map. And I think even just sometimes the kid and just their maturity and as they mature, they, you know, start to indicate more clearly what they can see and not see. Mm -hmm. But they usually don't say, hey, I can see that because, I mean, they can see it. Why would they say that? But anyway. Which, you know, you might have your antennae up for a really extremely low birth weight baby. So, again, the 23, 24 week gestation that maybe unfortunately was on the ventilator for quite some time exposed to a lot of oxygen and oxygen really is the thing that causes retinopathy of prematurity so if you had a baby like that that's one that i certainly would be watching in terms of vision but retinopathy with retinal detachment these days first retinopathy is becoming increasingly rare because of our respiratory management and the need for laser surgery, like Judy said, is also decreasing. And there's actually an intraocular medicine now where you can actually inject something into the eye to prevent retinopathy. So retinal detachment is also increasingly rare, which mm -hmm. is a good thing. So out-and-out -out blindness would be something that would also be rare as well. And there are certainly some congenital conditions, babies born with things that can cause blindness that have not been picked up yet potentially. So, you know, just because you're premature, you're concerned about blindness, sure, but there could be other reasons that the baby can't see. So those are things to look out for. Mm -hmm. 
So we haven't really touched on the hearing. Like usually if we're seeing children with a hearing loss, prematurity is not the first thing. The hearing loss is usually related to something else. So can you just speak to us a little bit about prematurity and hearing loss and maybe how those two things could be related if they are? All babies before they go home, premature or term, are going to be required to have a hearing test. And sometimes when they get the hearing test, they fail it. And that could just be a matter of placement of the test. And so we usually wait and then we repeat it a day or two later. And then if they fail it a couple times and it's no longer like, oh, that's just because, right. and that there might be a reason, then they would do a more advanced test. But sometimes they don't really do that until the baby goes home. Hmm. So it's not really a NICU problem, but it's flagged as a problem to follow after discharge from the mm -hmm. NICU. I'm not sure that there's anything related to prematurity that would really cause a baby to have hearing loss. You think about the ototoxic drugs, but again, mm -hmm. those we try to not use as much of. And if we are using them, then we're going to be monitoring the levels of them and adjusting the dosage or the frequency so that they're within the range of normal. So we do see a lot of kids with CMV. And a lot of times those children will have a hearing loss. So first, can you tell us what CMV stands for? And then second, is that something that if you see a child who's born with CMV, are they necessarily always going to be premature? Or can you be full-time and be born with CMV? The latter. So you can certainly be born either full-term or premature and have CMV. And CMV stands for cytomegalovirus. And it's one of the few viruses where there is actually a antiviral treatment. So there's actually a therapy for it, but it's a virus that is being studied and the treatment is being studied. So gancyclovir is the drug that is used and it's a lengthy therapy that does have some side effects on the bone marrow. So it's not mm -hmm. something that we use routinely, but if the baby meets criteria, has certain types of symptoms, then we do use the drug to try to prevent things like hearing loss. So yeah, it's actually an important virus. And I think there's work underway for vaccine because it is something that does affect a fair number of babies. And hearing loss is one of those things in addition to microcephaly. So a small head, which means a small brain, which means developmental issues long term. So it does have things that have caught people's attention such that people are invested in research and development. Is it the baby who goes through the treatment or the mom? The baby does. Would the mom also be treated? Well, you know, for us, it's really just kind of a routine cold. So a lot of us, and when I say a lot of us, gosh, don't quote me on this, but 70, 80, maybe 90 percent are seropositive for CMV. So we've been exposed to it. It was like a common cold for us, kind of a nuisance type thing. And we've got antibodies to it. So if you're a female and you're impregnated and you are exposed to CMV again, really no problem for you or the baby because the antibodies cross the placenta. But it's that almost classic young female who's not been around that long and has not been exposed to CMV and is in that 10 to 20 percent of folks who contract it during the pregnancy for the first time mm. don't have those protective antibodies and so the fetus is sort of naive and doesn't have the benefit of having mom's antibodies so both get it for the first time mm. for the mom it's not that big of a deal for the baby it can be a big deal we have one that's done the igg yes mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it was the first time i think in the past year that i even heard that, that was an option or mm -hmm. even knew it was a thing right at all yeah it's pretty exciting because he's doing really well really well Prior to that, my experience with children who were diagnosed with CMV was pretty devastating diagnosis, and mm -hmm. it can be 
pretty major stuff is happening. But he presents very differently. It's yeah. exciting. Really, you know, any infection. I think if you're looking at a discharge summary and you were to see a fungal infection, that is a fungal blood infection or a meningitis, whether it be fungal yeah. or bacterial or viral, those are kids also. You're going to have your antennae for developmental issues, whether it be blindness or hearing issues or mineral retardation, cerebral palsy. Even though they're good antibiotics to treat it, again, you're catching something like Judy said, where these organs are all maturing and you've got naive organs that don't have the benefit of antibody to protect them. And sometimes those infectious agents kind of have their way, so to speak, on those organs and leads to maldevelopment. Yeah. So we've covered a lot of big topics and clarified a lot of things for people, I think. So when we get these discharge summaries, because that's what happens, you get the referral in, you get the discharge summary, and they all look the same. Is that a thing that they all look the same? Is there a standard template? Y'all are laughing. <laughs> I think most neonatal ICU units do use a specific format. Mm-hmm. We have a computer program. Mm-hmm. And our computer program As does every takes... medical thing. Don't we exactly. love it? It's so exciting. Exactly. So you can admit <laughs> no the baby. You can do the progress notes on the baby. And, and actually, for me personally, because I'm on the Performance Improvement Committee, I can track everything. Oh, yes. Um, so you can do thing, queries huh? from that. But it also generates your discharge summary, which I'll let yeah. Dr. Cameron talk about. Well, you know, it kind of is basically broken into three sections. So the first section typically sort of chronological, I guess is a good way to think of it. So the first section is mom and delivery. What was interesting about the pregnancy? What were her serologies in terms of infectious agents, blood type, any types of complications she had? And I guess the second, really in still the first part, is the delivery history. So what happened in the delivery room? Was the baby a difficult delivery? Was there an extraordinary resuscitation, which may put the baby at risk for some of these diagnoses we've already talked about. And the bulk or the body of the discharge summary is the hospital course. So what type of diagnoses did the baby have inside the NICU and what was done for those? And then you get into the staging things that we've been talking about. Again, we're not great prognosticators, and I think that's important to remember. But if you do see a high number or you do see a worrisome diagnosis, it should be taken with some degree of seriousness and be looking at that baby be scrutinizing that baby more than you would another one potentially because you know that we've already communicated to the family this baby's at risk and these are the things we're worried about and then lastly is sort of the active diagnoses like what is this baby leaving the hospital with and who is going to pick up the baton in the community and continue to look at these diagnoses and hopefully resolve them well and the reason i mentioned that i think is so important and i love that you broke it down those sections like that is because i feel like you know you have to do your homework before people walk in the door and know what's coming so the more information you can get from the referral source on our end, the better so you can be prepared. Because we have a period of an initial of hour you do with the birth history. Well, sometimes you know, we see little people coming in. You don't have a long period of time. With a two-year-old, you know, you better yeah. be present. You better be ready because you're going to have to flow with their, what, their, what they got. Mm-hmm. And so if you spend 30 minutes talking about this history with the mom or dad or whoever, you've missed it. Right. You're like, look, buddy, we got to get the farm and the bubbles and the whatever and let's go. So I need to quick ask questions because I need to be present with that child because mm-hmm. it's not about me. It's about them. Mm-hmm. And I think if you spend a long time getting this history, it's really about you. Let me get all my ducks in Let me find out what's going That's on. You need point. to know in advance. So I think if you kind of know what you're looking for in the areas you're looking at, it also make your life faster because now we have all this paperwork that sometimes can be a little bit more intense than it used to be. So, and I would add that if you have a baby that's especially premature and has a really long discharge mm-hmm. summary, that that might be a clue that there might be something in there. Yeah. Good point. Yeah. So just don't skim through those. Mm-hmm. The longer the hospital course was, the more complicated and potentially you may see some morbidities. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
And you should also know, I think two of those always take note, like, all right, I got a tough cookie coming through the door, meaning that I got a fighter and I got somebody who's got somewhat of a strong will. So, okay, mm-hmm. just note to self. When there is discharge planning, do you link up with the CDSA or coordinate the family with the CDSA at all to kind of put them in mm-hmm. the services when they leave the hospital? You know, we have a baby steps clinic and it's a neurodevelopmental clinic that is at the hospital. Mm-hmm. And we do have physical therapy, occupational therapy, and speech therapy available there. So we have been able to form that group, fortunately, for discharge. But we have a clinic coordinator who meets with the parents before discharge, introduces herself and says, hey, I'm with the Baby Steps Clinic. This is when we're going to meet six months, 12 months, 18 and 24 months, roughly. And we're going to check in with this group of specialists to see how your baby's doing. You using a battery of tests. And if we find some issue, we may want to shore that up with some therapy. So she does a great job of introducing herself, the clinic, and who's going to be there. But like I said, I wish we had more folks to get in the NICU during those long stays for those extremely premature babies. I think the Baby Step Clinic is another podcast in and of itself, but I have two comments about that. One, I've worked in a couple of different Baby Step Clinics and seen a few different ones work differently. Two pivotal things, I think, in my career alone was, one, working in those various Baby Step Clinics, because if that won't teach you how to collaborate and work with others well and get information quickly, efficiently, nothing will. And then two, my experience of working at McDonald's when I was 16. But that's a whole nother podcast also. It has nothing to do with this, but I swear, two of those things, pivotal career things. Nice. So yeah, anyway, but not about me either now. But really the Baby Soap Clinic, that's a whole other podcast because there's some cool stuff that happens there. Mm-hmm. And for people who are listening, if you have an opportunity to be in part of a NICU follow-up clinic, man, this is a good experience. It will teach you how to collaborate, work with others, find out what other people do, ask the right questions. And also to identify some of the problems. Yeah. And I think part of the problem that we see is the follow-up. I mean, only certain babies qualify for the clinic, right. but then they have to come. Yeah. And it's free. I would, you know, echo what Judy said, too, about having spent some time in the NICU. So as a student, as an intern, as someone who's brand new to the field of physical therapy, speech therapy, occupational therapy, finding some opportunities Mm -hmm. to spend some time, like you said, in this relatively closed environment, just speaking for our patient population, we would all benefit from it. And we would certainly welcome you at Cape Fear Valley if you're (laughs) interested to come spend some time with us, because I think it would break down some of these terms and some of these barriers and might lead to a specific career decision. Yeah, I 100% agree with that. Yep. It's a rich learning environment. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So what's the future of neonatal medicine? What's on the horizon? When I started this, there was a very clear cutoff as to what babies you would resuscitate. Mm-hmm. And that cutoff has decreased. Mm-hmm. But I really feel that we're probably at the lower limit of where we're going to go, just physiology-wise. So the big things to me would be continued respiratory mm-hmm. advances, Mm-hmm. And I think also the nutrition. I think the nutrition plays a huge role if you have a balanced and adequate intake of protein and carbohydrate and fat and the baby is growing optimally based on that, then the organs are going to be developing properly as they should. And you may run less of a risk of some of the other morbidities that you have. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a long list of things that you could throw in there as well. But I think that that's the cutting edge right there. I agree. I think harnessing technology, like Judy says, in a responsible way. So getting back to the idea that the NICU is this intersection of technology, really heavily teched, and also being able to maintain 
some sense of respectfulness and what's appropriate morally and ethically is a continuing challenge for sure. So it may be the technology is able to carry us further down the gestational age scale, but it's challenging right now at 22 and 23 weeks for sure. And I think another area that's also interested or has become increasingly interesting to Judy and myself and several of our colleagues is the spiritual aspect of working in the NICU. So we do a really good job, I think, with quality improvement with these specific diagnoses and with improving the care of the neonates. But something that has become apparent recently is the emotional and mental and physical burden of caring for others. And, you know, saying that this is your job and that's just the way it is and see you tomorrow, it's all part of being a professional, just doesn't cut it anymore in terms of creating a work environment that you can sustain long-term relationships, both with your colleagues and with the family. So I think caring for the healthcare worker, you know, we put a lot of emphasis on the bed and who's in the bed and on who's on the other side of the bed in terms of the parents, but on that third side, that third component, the healthcare worker taking care of them, you know, looking at colleagues and realizing they have lives outside of that shift has become really important to us and how we can care for that responsibly. So yeah, I think that's also on the horizon. It's taking care of your people. You just yeah. said it. And that life balance. Mm-hmm. And currently right now, our leadership team here at PDT is reading the book Good to Great by Jim Collins. Mm-hmm. I've referenced it tons of times in these podcasts. There's lots of good information there, but we're actually on the chapter of who then what. So you can't have a good what if you don't have the right who and you got to take care of your who's. Right. Because you've got people in there with very specialized knowledge that, like we said before, they're just not falling off of trees and it takes a while to get there when you get good people. But it's pretty intense, just like what we do here, to mm-hmm. really give what you got to give to each person coming in to these babies all day and all the kids we see. You've got to be on your A game. Right. That's what these moms and dads and mm-hmm. these babies need. But you've got to also take care of yourself to keep showing up and be on your A game. When I talk to people about their A game, I'm like, we want A game and we want your B game to be pretty good. <laughs> yeah, we do. Yeah. Right. So, it's got to be a B plus. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because we say this all the time, whatever child I'm seeing for that 30 minutes, 45 minutes, hour, and your staff is dealing with much longer. But for me, back to back to back to back, and that equates to your regular work schedule and stuff too. Somebody else's most special person is my most special person. I'm going to give them all she got for that period of time and then I'm going to move on to the next and next and next. Well, that can be exhausting, but that's mm-hmm. really what's expected. Mm-hmm. So you do have to take care of your people. It's yeah. first the who, then the what, Jim Collins. And the nurses and respiratory therapists are at the bedside 12 hours a day. Mm-hmm. And they're dealing with things that we haven't touched on, things like families who are in disagreement or families who are arguing or families who right. don't agree with what the medical team is proposing or families who don't understand what the medical team is proposing. And the nurses in the middle trying to explain that to them. And then maybe the nurse is like, well, I'm not sure we should really be doing this. So there's a lot of emotional and ethical conflict in that realm sometimes, wow. too. And, you know, you take care of a baby and you develop a relationship with the family for a couple of weeks and then the baby dies. Yeah. So, you know, we do debriefings for the staff and we've included the chaplain. We've included employee assistance program, always somebody from the medical team and anybody that wants to come just to talk about, you know, what happened? How are you dealing with what happened? Mm -hmm. And how do you come back to work the next day? 
Right, and mm-hmm. do it all again mm-hmm. and leave that behind. I think that's a huge point in talking about in the future of neonatal medicine is mm-hmm. your people. and Because yeah. you really can't have good medical procedures and medical yeah. care if your people aren't taking care yeah, of Yeah, it's amazing the stories that come out of those debriefings, the things that you think are in right field that somebody witnessed or carried with them in some guilt home. And you're like, wow, I did not realize that's what you took away from that experience. We were both there at the bedside, but you took away something completely different than I did. So just to be able to put it on the table in a safe place and to be able to examine it as a group is really helpful. Do you think that's unique to Cape Fear? It's not, but it's relatively new in medicine and nursing. There's been a lot of literature written maybe in the last eight to 10 years, and there have been a lot of conference seminars on that. Mm -hmm. And different hospitals are handling it in different ways, and they get different people involved. And The debriefing is something that we have adopted, and we've been doing it for probably about four years. But emergency room does it. Paramedics do it. I mean, people who are in intense situations. Our employee assistance person says people who see things that you could not imagine seeing Mm -hmm. are the people that specifically need to be involved with the debriefing. And it's open to anyone. So it's interesting that people that come, they're coming because there's a reason that they want to be there. Mm -hmm. And sometimes, you know, it can be very accusatory. And sometimes, I mean, you know, there's some good emotional leverage that comes out of the debriefings. And then you can kind of, like Scott said, it's like growing up, what I saw and what my sister saw are totally different things. Mm -hmm. Right. But the same thing can happen at the bedside. And it's absolutely amazing that that does happen, Mm -hmm. but it smooths the path and good changes have come from some of the suggestions that have occurred because of that. Yeah. So does somebody facilitate that debriefing? Is there like a counselor that facilitates it or are you all facilitate it or how does that work? Combination. So it is, Judy primarily does a fantastic job with that and the hospital chaplain and mm-hmm. potentially... The employee assistance employee people assistant, have come yeah. a couple of times, but most of them I've been leading. We've actually had the priest from down the street come to one. Right. If there have been outside clergy support, we invite them. Mm-hmm. We had a clergy student come once. And that was interesting, too, because he had talked about his experience of being unable to have a child. And he saw that child and thought, well, at least you got six hours with it. Wow. Even just the debriefing from the people who are supposed to be debriefing can sometimes be interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Man. Way to take care of your people mm-hmm. and keep them around mm-hmm. and doing a quality job the next day to support them so they can do it. And they're ready and present and right. able to. Awesome. It's a big package. I mean, I usually give them a little bag of goodies, like some chocolate and a note and maybe a verse card and a candle and stuff like that. And a handwritten note that says, you know, we really appreciate everything you've done for this family and for this baby. And it's, it's a process. That, yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. That, you know, we recognize that you did a good job right. and that you were there. And so that's the first piece. And then we talk to them after the baby dies just to kind of you know, how are you doing? Sometimes they're crying and you're talking, but I mean, you know, it's just the range of emotions that people exhibit. And then we tried to do the debriefings within two weeks because you need a little bit of time to kind of process it and come back and say, all right, well, this is what we did. And this might've been a better way to approach that or not. Mm-hmm. That's great. And I go home from those exhausted. I bet you do. <laughs> I was going to say, did you have that in the introduction? Like you've got to be exhausted. That's emotionally got to be pretty intense. Well, I appreciate you all's time. Thank you so much. I learned a lot. And I think this is going to be great, valuable information to others. I really appreciate it. And thank you, Kirsty, for being here also. Thank you. She shows up for a lot of them. I always invite people who are smarter than me, always. And they always turn out good. 
<laughs> All right. Well, thank you again. I really do appreciate it. Thank you, Judy. Thank you, Scott. Thank Enjoyed you, Kirsty. Thank, thank you. And great discussion, great learning, fantastic way to get some clarity on a lot of terms and conditions that we've all heard and seen with kids that we worked with. So thank you again to Scott and Judy and Kirsty for that discussion and opportunity. And thanks everybody for listening. We'll catch you next time on another episode of The Working Therapist. Thanks for joining us for today's edition of The Working Therapist, an extension of the Pediatric Developmental Therapy Network. If you would like more information regarding this podcast or would like to get in touch with us for any reason, visit us on the web at www.pediatricdt.com. That's pediatricdt.com. 